Hello and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? How can we govern this space better? Excellent questions for the future and for indeed the next 40 minutes where we're going to be talking to our esteemed guest who has been on the podcast before about their new book, Governable Spaces. Very excited to have our guest on the platform. Before I introduce him, I want to make sure that you know who the other people are on this podcast. I'm, of course, your host, Richard Litauer. Hi, everyone. That's my normal voice. And I'm joined today by the illustrious and illimitable Leslie Hawthorne. Leslie, how are you today? Absolutely wonderful. It is a beautiful sunny day trailing into evening hours in Bonn, Germany. It is a beautiful, cloudy, boring, standard, typical midwinter day here in Vermont. Nathan Schneider of Boulder, Colorado. How is the weather there and how are you? It's a boring, sunny, beautiful day in Boulder. I'm doing well. I managed to get up the hill that I have to bike up to get to my office. So everything's good. Boulder, of course, has 330 days of sun for which the rest of the country and Europe just hates them. Jealousy. Nathan Schneider. Nathan is the assistant professor of media studies at CU Boulder, which is also the University of Colorado Boulder. Makes no sense. He's also the director of the Media Enterprise Design Lab. And Nathan, you've been on this show before, but you contacted us today about your new book that came out, Governable Spaces, Democratic Design for Online Life, which is put out by University of California Press, popping in at a beautiful 130 pages, and then the references add another like 75. Tell us a bit about this book. How did it start? What's the story? Thank you so much. It's, it's really good to be back. So this book started for me while I was trying to run online spaces, while I was trying to help support what became the title of the book, Governable Spaces. For instance, if you've ever run a, an email list or a forum or a Facebook group or something like that, you've probably started to run into some of these problems. You have an issue come up, you have somebody behaving badly as people do on the internet, and you have to figure out how to address these problems. And at the time, this is five, four years ago, stuff like that. I was working as I continue to with a lot of people trying to build cooperative businesses on the internet, trying to do democracy online. And I started realizing, wow, the spaces that we have, the tools that we have are really crappy for practicing democracy. And this was in contrast to, for instance, conversations with my mother who was had just been elected president of her garden club. And I was really, really struck by how she uh, in her garden club had organizational technologies in the form of bylaws and just habits of practice that were not available in the online spaces I was trying to help govern and help manage democratically. And so that just poses question for me, why? Why is it that this garden club has such more sophisticated democratic tools than our miraculous online spaces. And that took me into a history of the development of online spaces. How did we get here? And also some ruminations and anxieties about how the shape of our online spaces might actually be contributing to like the world historical decline of democracy and could lead us actually to a, a really fundamental rethinking of how we design online spaces and how we develop policy and infrastructure to support them. 
So what started out as kind of a little itch turned into a much, much bigger set of challenges and, and stories. In fact, the last hundred pages are just how to start a local gardening club. No, I wish that would be amazing. Thank you for that summary. So you sent me the book, which I'm really appreciate. And Leslie has a copy as well. So we've just been sort of skimming it. It is pretty dense. No offense. You are an academic and you write like one. Oh which my is gosh. I, I used to be a journalist. And when I was reading the proofs for this book, I did feel that. I felt like, oh my gosh, peer review for the last eight years of writing for peer review has done something to my prose. And it's true. This is a book meant to speak to a guild. I do hope there's value for folks beyond it as well. Say that with love. I'm a lapsed academic myself. I have written it primarily with fellow researchers and other obsessives in mind. I underlined that and said it me. This isn't just for academics. It's also for people interested in, say, open source, people who are running communities, people who are working on the email list serve galleys of hell. Go read it. It's interesting. I have a couple of questions. If you don't mind, I just want to like dive right in. Is that cool? Go. Okay. So first off, Guttable Spaces to me meant it sound like it was going to be about either the Capitol building or possibly about, say, Facebook. At one point, you say governable spaces arise when social and technical infrastructures enable participants to deliberate, make decisions, and enact those decisions through accessible, transparent, and just processes, which makes me feel like this book is about nothing because I can barely think of any space where that happens altogether. Can you tell me a bit more about, was governable spaces a, a bait and switch? Are you trying to say this is what we should make as opposed to what we have? Yeah. While working on this book, I started realizing how much my interest is in what we don't have. It's in the kind of absence of our digital lives. You know, in, in my work before this, supporting cooperatives and online contexts, that too has often become a study of what we don't have and why. Here, that is totally the case. I'm interested in what we didn't enable when designing the early online spaces, the early kind of BBSs and tools for collaboration of different sorts and the early social networks and now the social networks we've inherited. And so it is very much about what we don't have and that weirdly we don't question not having. Why is it that we don't question that the tools never enable us or encourage us to consider voting out our mods, right? Why is it that when somebody has a conflict, there is not a tool set available for resolving that conflict in a kind of precise and appropriate fashion. Instead, we get things like those by the name of cancel culture or call out culture, a kind of digital pile on that everybody can recognize as kind of not constructive, but nevertheless feels often necessary in some circles. Over and over, I think that some of the deep symptoms that we experience in our online lives and in culture more broadly as a result come from the fact that we don't have better tools, that we don't have better norms, that we don't have, we have come to accept as tolerable a situation in which our democratic skills are not being mobilized in online space in the way that for pre-digital like civic associations like that garden club, we would take for granted. And I think that there is something deeply important about that that we need to be able to practice democracy in our everyday lives in order to practice it at larger scales as well. And when we lose it in our everyday lives, 
we lose the practice that the habits that we need to practice at larger scales. This is a point that political scientists have been making, you know, going back to the 1830s with Alexis de Tocqueville and going through decolonial scholars and activists in the 20th century up through people working for justice and many kinds today. And so it's a kind of deeply resonant point among people thinking about democracy for a long time. And yet, I don't think it's come up. I don't think we, we tend to expect that we should be able to have these kinds of capacities in online life. And the point I'm trying to making is, yeah, actually, we should. I will say I was personally offended that the Tocqueville didn't come up until page six. I felt like that was a waste of five pages of intro. <laughs> I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I'm totally there with you. I think we should have more imagination in our spaces. We should have more abilities to do things with the tools that we have at hand, and we should have better tools to help us be able to moderate our lives. A lot of what you've been talking about sort of applies at the big level of like, what is democracy? What is culture? Which makes sense, right? You're a media archaeologist. You're out there digging through things, trying to figure out how does culture work as a whole. For listeners who may be curious how this relates to open source sustainability, could you maybe give us an answer to that question so we can sort of put on our, this is actually related to open source hats while we listen to you talk? Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you bring that up because it is a really, really interesting case and a really interesting part of this story. For instance, when we talk about absences, think of Git. Anybody who's participating, at least on the software level of an open source project is probably familiar with Git software and the platformization of Git with GitLab or GitHub or whatever tool you use. So Git is an example of what I would argue is a power vacuum in itself does not have a kind of governance tooling about it. It is a tool that enables people in a very decentralized way to manage version control and build on each other's tools. But it doesn't say a lot about what the canonical version is and that sort of thing. The platforms like GitHub, they add this, what I call implicit feudalism onto Git, where somebody's the admin and they have absolute control over how the system works. Or before that, it was whoever controlled the email list or who controlled the canonical release that would have that power. And this reflects a broader sense in which open source has kind of kicked the can on governance. It said, okay, we're not going to worry about governance. We're just going to share code and you know let things fall where they may. But as a result, it enabled a lot of corporate capture. Two critical things were not built into our open source stack for many, many years. Governance and economies. Those had to be done externally from the tool set that open source communities were generally using. And as a result, those generally, in many, many cases, became adopted by corporations. They said, oh, we would be very happy to provide the governance and the economy to support this project. And that meant open source became very, very vulnerable to capture. So that's a deep part of the story of these tools. Open source also provides some examples of how things could be done differently. For instance, in the case of Python, in the last few years, the project went from being under the control of a benevolent dictator for life, the founder, through a participatory process, becoming a kind of reasonable board structure that looks actually a lot like my mother's garden club. And this was actually possible because they had some tooling for adopting improvement proposals for the software. 
And so they just treated changing the governance as an improvement proposal because they had some infrastructure to support collective decision-making. They were able to kind of make this really reasonable shift in their the governance as a whole and adopt a kind of sensible democracy. So that was a transition over time. We need to make sure to enable projects to have those kinds of transitions. Another example from open source is the kind of stack, the governance stack structure that one might see, for instance, in the Linux ecosystem. This is a reminder that governance diversity can be really, really powerful. So for instance, you have the Linux kernel under a benevolent dictatorship for life, but then you have the Debian project, which is a kind of famously slow and meticulous democratic constitutional system. And that actually is a crucial layer in the ecosystem that then is built on, for instance, by Ubuntu and other projects that commercialize that slow nonprofit democracy. And I think there's incredible value in that ecosystem and having diverse forms of governance across it. So what I'm arguing for is not to say there's a one-size-fits-all thing that we need to adopt, but actually we need the capacity to have multiple diverse forms of appropriate governance in different ways. And there are some really important bright spots in the experience of open source that I think you know broader digital lives could learn from. But in many respects, they've often been the exception that proves the rule. Thanks for that, Nathan. I'm actually really curious to hear more from you about why you believe that the structures that have grown up have done so very specifically without governance as a first order priority and democratic sharing of responsibilities and enforcement of social norms. And I have a follow-up question after that. Great. Well, it's a, it's a great question and one that I've really tried to unravel for myself. I think there are two ways of approaching it particularly relevant to open source. One is cultural, is a kind of libertarian ethos that tries to imagine that we can have a world without collective governance and that we can, in some sense, supplant collective governance with a meritocracy. And so I think many people in the kind of early years of open source and free software relished the idea of a world in which the kind of mess of politics was no longer necessary and in which just the skilled people would rise up kind of by default. And I think a lot of our experience since then has shown us how that is not often the case, that we live in a world of inequality and in a world in which meritocracy sees the value of some things and not others. And that can be a profound inhibitor of progress. And, you know, I think has posed real challenges to the growth of open source. And the other side, though, is technical and a bit of legal, which is that the structure of the internet as we have it is one in which the server is king. The server is the kind of basic unit of governance, the dominant form of, that the internet has taken. And the server ultimately, this is a bit of a simplification, but is a computer that's plugged in, into somebody's wall. And whoever's wall that is owns the server and has ultimate responsibility for it. And there were a bunch of cases early in BBS days in the 80s and 90s and into the early internet where people would experiment with democratic governance, with voting on policies and things like that. And then they'd realize, wait a second, my company owns the server and the wall it's plugged into. We are ultimately responsible. We are the ones who have to own up to whatever happens on the server legally. And therefore, we really can't allow democracy to happen. 
And then, of course, they start realizing, well, also, we don't want democracy to happen because we want to make as much money as we can off of this thing. So there was kind of kind of feedback loop there where the network structure of the system reinforced the business incentives. And so a lot of those early democratic experiments got eroded. And so it's both, I think, a kind of reinforcing social, cultural, technological, legal kind of spin cycle. And we have to be aware that those dimensions helped contribute to an outcome that maybe we wouldn't want. And many people in that early internet period didn't want from the beginning. Thank you. So Nathan, I wonder if you've given any time and exploration in your book to the consideration of the notion that one of the reasons why, in addition to the legal constraints and the technical constraints you've outlined, that part of the cultural constraints that we have is that those who were the earliest designers of the internet and all of these different technological interfaces were themselves not members of historically marginalized or vulnerable populations. And since they were in that situation, they didn't see the need for governance to be added to the tooling or, in fact, governance in the form of, say, things like bylaws, like your mom's gardens club. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you asked this. That story is kind of embedded in that sense of the meritocratic fallacy, but it goes so much deeper. A lot of the early language floating around the early internet and is still very much with us is language of colonization. I especially zero in on this language of homesteading, which was a lot of the conversation about the early online spaces like The Well, famous early BBS. It was in the subtitle of uh, Howard Rheingold's famous book on, it's called The Virtual Community Homesteading uh, on this electronic frontier. And the idea of homesteading going back to 19th century history in the United States was a kind of patriarchal capture of land from indigenous communities and ruling over that land, and that being the basis of democratic land ownership and control over, over someone else's land is what democracy should be made of. And I think that a lot of those ideas were imported into the construction of online spaces. The idea that a local autocracy of the patriarch of a family is how we should build democracy. And this is, I think, a profound fallacy. I think that the fallacy was also revealed by people like Joe Freeman in her famous essay, The Tyranny of Structurelessness, talking about activist groups in the 1960s. But many people have seen the truth of this in the context of digital cultures since where when we don't establish governance, it actually becomes a kind of explicit governance. It becomes a kind of opportunity for people with existing privilege to just take control by default. And she insists on the need for what she calls democratic structuring in order to counteract that tendency. Try to also contrast this idea of homesteading with a language of home place, which is an idea that comes from Bell Hooks, the Black feminist scholar who describes the home place as the home made especially by Black women in the context of slavery and Jim Crow and racism in, in general. And this is a place of comfort, of safety, of connection in the context of a society that is often against the people making that space. And I think many of our online spaces actually, despite implicit feudalism, despite the structural dynamics, are actually home places for us. And I want to build on that, build on the practice that people are doing. I want to acknowledge also that when I say that these spaces are not democratic, I'm talking about the dominant structures and the designs. 
I'm not necessarily talking about what people are actually doing with those spaces. There's so many ways in which individual online communities, particularly among people who are not from dominant identity groups and this sort of thing, have been practicing powerful forms of democracy in their online spaces, despite all the kind of defaults and tendencies and inclinations to do otherwise. That idea of home places evokes that reality and points to it as what we should build on. You write in your book, perhaps leaning so hard as I have on democracy will only cause it to snap. And I think this was a really excellent comment. And it points out a number of questions I had while reading your book. One of them is also around homesteading. I think homesteading is an interesting metaphor. I think colonization of the internet is, is an interesting, similar metaphor, although you also quote later another person saying decolonization is not a metaphor, which I thought was excellent as well. What's interesting for me about homesteading is that there was no indigenous community of the web before the web existed. It was empty. It was vapid. It was terraformed out of nothing. It is a metaphor in some way to say that building a platform on IP that wasn't there before, and by, I mean IP addresses, is like homesteading. You also bring up implicit feudalism. For me, as an amateur medievalist, feudalism is an entirely different concept that has a whole structure to it involving the clergy, the third estate, all sorts of things that aren't represented in my relationship with Mark Zuckerberg. May he live forever. So I'm just really curious about was it difficult to write this book knowing that the terms that you're using just totally break down if, if you look closely at them? I feel like there's a lot of that going on. I wanted to make sure I wasn't alone. <laughs> Bring up some really thorny questions. I too am kind of a medieval enthusiast and feudalism is a term that was developed after the Middle Ages to insult the Middle Ages. Medieval Europe was actually a place of a lot of very interesting governance structures. I'm a grateful inheritor of one as a member of the university guild, where we have the ability to make decisions in our faculty meetings that the chancellor of the university can't overturn. And that's thanks to the Middle Ages. So there's so much, so much to draw on there. And so I am very knowingly using feudalism as a cartoon. We're talking about this idea of fiefdoms where admins have absolute control over their spaces for in perpetuity. And it's very much a kind of cartoon version of a governance system and not and should not be taken as historically instructive. On the point of democracy, absolutely. I mean, every time I write that word, I think like, is this word going to hold up? I mean, the, the people who created the U.S. Constitution were anxious about the word democracy. At their time, it had connotations of kind of people now call populism, this kind of like mob rule. Populism actually emerged as, I think, a really good word in the late 19th century as the self-described term of the Populist Party, which was an incredible democratic movement built on cooperatives and unions and grassroots power, not the adulation of a particular politician. So words change meanings all the time. And partly that's where this book, I think gets really like radical where it starts being less about like, hey, could we tweak some tools in online spaces and starts asking the question of if we do democracy in online life, does that actually begin changing our very notion of politics in general? Does it start to invite us into a world in which our citizenship is not just based on a territorial state, but is actually based on, but is, can be also 
in relation to our virtual lives and our digital lives and our digital communities. Can we have these kind of overlapping sovereignties, right, in which our citizenship, our sense of governable space is not just made by a nation state, a local region, a city, that sort of thing, but actually extends into non-territorial life. And that's where I think this challenge that I'm posing starts getting, on the one hand, kind of wacky, but on the other hand, I think in some sense, perhaps closer than we realize. What we're talking about here is a sense in which if we take seriously what's happening in our online worlds, we have to start really rethinking how we are governing you know, the world in general. Thanks for explaining that. You mentioned the word wacky and immediately the entire chapter dedicated to crypto jumped to my mind, which I would be remiss if I didn't mention partially because just to be explicit, I mean, my student loans were paid off by crypto, so it's influenced my life, but it's still a horrible section of the internet in a lot of ways, largely because of the entrenched privilege of the people who play with it most of the time, which is something we talked about earlier in this podcast. You also measure that chapter with another section on transformative justice, which I really like that you put those two together. It's probably the first time anyone's ever done that. So you've made something new in the world. Good for you. But you talk about how, you know, different ways of understanding policing is very similar to different ways of understanding how do we join together in a DAO to work with different agents. And so I think that's all really, really useful and excellent. I have a question out of that, which is, you didn't spend a lot of time, in my opinion, focus on the protocols themselves. You keep talking about platforms and you keep talking about governable spaces and online spaces and online tooling, but there's very little discussion of, say, RabbitMQ or UDP or anything that would look like an actual protocol. You mentioned Git earlier. Now, Git's really interesting because you say there is no governance inherent in Git, which I would strongly disagree because all of Git is based on Merkle DAGs, which are based on the idea that you have a root to a tree and the root is in some sense the authority. Because if you have another branch that isn't part of that root, it's a different tree and they can't be merged, right? You just can't do it. That's a protocol decision. So I'm really curious. We don't have to go into the crypto if you don't want. I think I said what I needed to say. I just needed to get that out of my system and I apologize. But I'm really curious about this omission about protocols. You just mentioned home places as well. Home places are, are lovely. And I think that's part of what brings humanity to the web. But that's not based on the protocols. That's based on people being human in any space they're going to be. They're going to find a way to be friends. So can you talk a bit to that? Yeah, totally obsessed with protocols. And it's maybe not saying enough about in this book that is making me want to write another book on protocols because protocols understood really, really broadly as a way that humans have self-governed as long as humans have been self-governing as a mode of social organization that we often neglected in preference to the state and the market. But protocols are deeply important here. And the reason why I do take crypto blockchain stuff seriously, even at a moment where it's like deeply unpopular and where the most visible examples of this stuff are horrific, is that they actually break in a fundamental way at the protocol level, the logic of implicit feudalism, which isn't to say they guarantee it goes away. There's no tech solutionism here, but they create an opportunity in that a protocol like Bitcoin or Ethereum or things built on top of that, like a DAO, are kind of by default user governed. 
the assumption in them is not that there's one point of failure, one plug in a wall attached to a server, but it's a network that all the participating nodes have to self-govern in some way. And as a result of that technical change, there has been an explosion of investment and development for governance tooling, for tooling for decision-making. Things that we do not see in Web2 ever. You do not see Web2 companies building like technologies to support liquid voting systems or like different forms of viewing proposals to evaluate, right? It's just not a thing in Web2. In Web3, there's a whole kind of sub-industry of platforms trying to do that. And that's because of the protocols. It's because of the shift in how these things are designed. So it is really crucial. Once again, change in technology does not guarantee an outcome any more than the decentralization of the web guaranteed that the web would be ultimately decentralized or that the decentralization in, in many respects of Git governance. And yes, you're absolutely right that Git is in some respects a governance system would guarantee that the power would remain decentralized. Similarly, blockchains are very, very vulnerable to capture as any protocol is, but it does present an interesting opportunity. And the fact that this industry emerged in the context of that is a signal that actually protocol designs do have profound consequences for the possibilities of democratic governance. And the comparison with the transformative justice activists, these are people often like associated with the Black Lives Matter movement, so forth, who call for abolition of police and prisons, who are trying to find alternative ways of problem solving, of conflict resolution, addressing violence, this sort of thing. The reason I pair them with the crypto folks is that in both cases, they are people trying to find technologies of governance, practices of governance that are not fundamentally reducible to the state and that are fundamentally based on networks and relationships. And so I've been looking at these two spaces out of personal curiosity together over the years. And it's probably true that there aren't many people who have that shared interest, but I can't help but see them in conversation together because on an infrastructural level, I think they're doing something very similar. So we're running into the end of the podcast, but I, I feel like I would be deeply remiss in not asking you for your thoughts on creating spaces that have the kinds of tools and the kinds of governance that we want. What's your viewpoint on the Fediverse and federated social networking and how that technological change is potentially allowing us to have better democratic governmental spaces for our social media communications? <laughs> Thanks for this. Yeah, I'm personally a big Fediverse fan. Like I, five years ago, I co-founded a Mastodon server called start.coop that's a cooperatively governed server. It's taught me, for instance, on the one hand, that this technology opens the door for creating governable spaces. But again, it doesn't guarantee it. I mean, the design of a Mastodon server is still very much implicit feudalism. Whoever's running that server has absolute control, and it still requires, for instance, people with decent amounts of technological know-how to run these servers. And so it ends up indexing on handing power to people with tech skills rather than necessarily people with community skills. And that's a challenge I'm really interested in trying to address. But I think the Fediverse is a tremendous, tremendous opportunity to open these doors, to enable a diversity of experiments and explorations and how we could self-govern online. I would love to see more kind of self-governance tooling built into how these servers are set up and how the network is designed. I think there's still some 
dangerous tendencies there, but it is kind of fundamental opportunity. And just personally, being part of a self-governing, really intentionally governing community with a lot of shared values has made social media fun again. And I'm personally really grateful for that. It has taken years to build and it's a kind of slowness that we don't usually expect in our social media lives. But I've found that making that investment in building community and building trust and a kind of democracy is really worth it and pays dividends just in like daily online life. I love that. Nathan, thank you so much for writing this book. Thank you for sharing it with us today. Is there anything that people can do to get this book or your writings online? Yeah, the glorious thing about this book is it's free. So it's available open access from University of California Press in beautiful PDF or EPUB editions. They've done a really, really nice job of investing in open access. And I'm really glad to be able to participate in that. You can also get print copy wherever you get books, but this is really designed to be shared and, and spread, dipped into and then dipped out of if it gets too hard or too dense. So you can find this and my other work at nathanschneider.info or at ntnsndr at social.coop for social media. Excellent. Thank you so much. Don't leave yet. We have another part of the show called Spotlight, where we highlight people, places, things, or birds which have given us love and life and meaning recently, or which we just think need a bit of light shed on them. Leslie, what is your light today? I would like to shine a spotlight on my community dev room for FOSDEM co-organizers, Laura Chikowski and Shirley Bales. I'm not able to join them in person for the community dev room this year. It is always an honor to organize this activity with them annually. And I'm sorry to be missing being there with you folks in person. I have huge FOMO. Thank you so much. Hope everyone had a great time at FOSDEM. My spotlight is the Vermont Arts Council. Recently found out there's an arts council for my state. I bet there's one for yours too, slash country. These are basically people who are really awesome. They're just interested in giving funds and showcasing artists. And if you are hearing this, you're probably an artist in some way because all human activity is in some sense an expression of art and play. So check out your local arts council, see what they have offering. It's probably pretty cool. Minus to the Vermont Arts Council. Nathan, what's your spotlight today? I would love to spotlight work of a group called the Exit to Community Collective. It's a group of activists and researchers who have been exploring strategies around how groups can convert to more community ownership and governance. And they've just released a really beautiful new website at e2c.how, H-O-W. And it includes case studies like the Python case that I described earlier and many, many more of how different kinds of organizations, companies, open source projects have matured into community ownership or governance. And I just invite folks to check out that site, e2c.how. And if you have a story to share, to contribute your case as well. Excellent. Thank you so much. Do check those out. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have, there are things you can do to make it a better governable space in the future. One of them is that money is power. So if you want to hear this sort of awesome content, please donate. OpenCollective.com slash sustain OSS. We will take your funds gladly and never give them back, except in words and stuff like that. Please share this podcast wherever podcasts are sold, bought, tendered, whatever. Send it across the sea. Do whatever you can to make sure other people hear this sort of stuff. That would be really, really nice like it on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you're downloading this thing, whatever horrible tech platform is vending it to you. 
If you have any thoughts on this podcast, you can email us at podcast.sustainoss.org. It goes to all the hosts. You can also contact us on Mastodon or on Blue Sky. And Nathan is, of course, on those things as well. So if you have questions for Nathan, you can send them to him. You can send them to us. You can go to discourse.sustainoss.org to have a wonderful conversation about this podcast afterwards. Very few people do that. Like we post it every time, but very few people actually comment and like, let's change that. I bet that 10 of you commenting would make my day. So there, the gauntlet has been thrown and this is implicit fleet feudalism. So make sure to be careful of gauntlets because they're real things. Nathan, thank you so much again for coming on. It's truly excellent. Good luck with the book. And that's it. <laughs>